You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 11, Ohio vs. Water, and this is our second to last episode of season four. Again, thank you so much for listening and sharing the show. Today we are traveling to Cleveland's Case Western Reserve University and to Columbus to meet with uh, two, our two guests in person. And these are two topics that really could have been their own episode, but they're inexorably connected. The story of the original political kingmaker, Cleveland's Mark Hanna, the man that modernized political campaigns, introduced money into politics, and really probably the man indirectly responsible for bringing us you know, Citizens United and the current campaign finance disaster that we live in. Mark Hanna is a man that many believe single-handedly put William McKinley into the White House at the turn of the 19th century. We'll focus how the son of a grocery store owner in Cleveland became the most powerful man in American politics for probably about a 10-year period. How he and McKinley beat the political bosses and really how Mark Hanna became the boss. Our guest to discuss Mark Hanna is going to be John Grabowski, a professor of history at Case Western, senior vice president at the Western Reserve Historical Society. And we met him at his office on the beautiful Case campus there on the east side of Cleveland. Hanna's legacy is not often enough connected with the massive impact his death would have and how his death improved the world. Uh, you know, Our other guest is author and Columbus historian, architect, former project manager at the Columbus Division of Water, Conrad Hines. As an architect, just as a note, he's not a fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, as part of our fascinating interview, we talked about that. But he spent many years at the Dublin Road water plant in Columbus, and he wrote the book, The Great Columbus Experiment of 1908, which is what we'll focus on today. Columbus Water was deemed responsible for killing Senator Mark Hanna at the height of his powers. Waterborne diseases like typhoid and cholera, you know, any former player of the of the game, the Oregon Trail, when we were kids in the 80s, you'll remember those diseases. They were very deadly. And we'll analyze how Hannah's death helped galvanize the city of Columbus to fix the problem of water purification and how the Columbus, you know, the great Columbus experiment, as it was called, would ultimately change the world. Our beer for the episode today is Clear Sky Daybreak, by Columbus's Wolf's Ridge Brewing, located in downtown Columbus, 215 North 4th Street. Go to wolfsridgebrewing.com. Uh, they make awesome beers. And, and Mark Hanna was in Columbus and staying within a block or two of Wolf's Ridge Tap Room and Brewery and a great restaurant they have there, too, on North 4th Street when he first got sick. Wolf's Ridge uh, always gets really high marks. And this beer we're drinking today, Clear Sky Daybreak, uh, it's a coffee vanilla cream ale. Uh, that won the silver medal in the coffee beer category at the Great American Beer Festival this year. Silver medalist. Um, and it's 5% alcohol. It doesn't look like a coffee ale or a stout. It's only, uh, like I said, it's a lighter. But you can taste that coffee. There's, fr- I mean, it's just a great beer. For someone like me, not a big coffee drinker, not a big cream ale drinker, um, it's a, just a fantastic beer. One of the best beers we have in the city. 
Uh, you can get it at most stores here, at least in central Ohio. Again, Wolf's Ridge Brewing. Quick hello to our friend Jenny over there at Wolf's Ridge. And you can find them downtown on North 4th Street. Again, wolfsridgebrewing.com. Uh, without further delay, though, let's get into episode 11. Today we'll discuss the life of Dollar Mark Hanna the importance of his death and how it helped make water drinkable for billions over the last hundred years. Water, water everywhere back in the day, but not a drop to drink. And we'll talk about how all that changed uh, here in Columbus and through the life of Mark Hanna. It's episode 11, Ohio versus Water. of today's show, Marcus Alonzo Hanna, is born in September of 1837. He's born in the same town, actually, as the subject of our last show, Clement Vallandingham. He's born in New Lisbon, Ohio, now just called Lisbon, in Columbiana County, just south of Youngstown. He's born to an upper-middle-class family, but never the kind of family you'd imagine a man of immense power and wealth could come from. He meets a friend in high school, a friend that would go on to become the richest man in the world, uh, a man named John D. Rockefeller. You can go back and listen to, I think it was our episode 11 from last year, Ohio versus Wealth from season three about the richest man in the world, John D. Rockefeller, one of my favorite episodes, an episode that a lot of people um, always seem to mention as one of their favorites. But we ask our guest, Professor John Grabowski from Case Western, just about the early years of Marcus Alonzo Hanna. Right. Actually, Mark Hanna grew up in what is now Lisbon, Ohio. It was New Lisbon at that point. And his father, Dr. Leonard Hanna, was a physician who had a riding accident and then got into the grocery business, which a grandfather in Lisbon, Ohio, had that as well. But the family came up to Cleveland by the 1840s, 1850s. And when Hannah was here, he worked, the father again had a grocery business, and, and Mark worked in the grocery business. But he, he went to high school, uh, which was a rare thing at that time. He went to Cleveland Central High, which is purportedly the, the first public high school west of the Alleghenies. And one of his classmates uh, was going to be a commodities broker eventually. It was a guy named John D. Rockefeller. Sure. And Rockefeller's uh, uh, wife-to-be, uh, Laura Spellman, was there as well. So this was a fairly elite public high school at that time. In, in the downtown, 18th, kind of. Downtown, right? yeah, downtown in, in downtown Cleveland. And it's the 1850s when the city was really beginning to pop. Mark Hanna tries to make it on his own. He's an entrepreneur in Cleveland. Many different ventures that he's into, but it wasn't until he gets married, married into money, that he really becomes wealthy. Marrying into money like our fellow Clevelander from season two, John Hay. Another great episode of High Over the Gilded Age that you can go listen to. Um, he was a Clevelander who married married into serious money. They both lived on Millionaire's Row, him and Mark Hanna and John Hay. But it's that union, his marriage, that really allows Hanna to make his mark. Yeah, he marries into money, but there you have to remember that his, his family was fairly well off in New Lisbon, and uh, wholesale grocery was a good business. But he wasn't really rich, and he tried to get into business on his own for about nine years. He tried and failed. He he got into the oil refining business, and his refinery burned down. He had a ship on the Great Lakes that sank. Uh, so he, he was not winning anything. And uh, he'd fallen in love with a young woman named Charlotte Rhodes, whose father, Daniel P. Rhodes, uh, basically had a, a coal mining and later an iron, uh, pig iron company. And uh, father-in-law saw his potential, saw the potential of Marcus, and eventually brought him into the business. And that's where his wealth came. That became M.A. Hanna. The rise of Mark Hanna is really directly aligned with the rise of Cleveland. It's one of the real boom towns of the late 19th century. 
we talked to John Grabowski about how Mark Hanna becomes a magnate, positioning himself to become what I believe to be the most powerful man in American politics for the last decade of the 19th century and really the beginning of the 20th. After the Civil War, Hanna uh, spends a brief period of time, 100-day man yeah. in the Army, um, and he misses any action, actually. There's a long story there. Uh, but he comes back to the city, and the city is really transformed by the Civil War. I mean, it's not pre-industrial. It's a nascent industrial city, but by the 18, late 1860s, uh, petroleum uh, coming in from western Pennsylvania is the main business, and iron and steel, if I will, uh, when he walks into his father-in-law's business, coal mines in the Mahoning Valley around Tuscarawas County, uh, that's that's really, that's where all the power is coming from. And then they also produce pig iron. So by the 1870s and 1880s, not only, you know, making things with coal and iron is important, but he also then gets into something called globe shipbuilding. And so he's also handling ships. So he becomes a millionaire rather rapidly. As we mentioned earlier, there's two stories going on in this episode. And don't worry, they'll meet up towards the middle, but the second story is the history of drinking water in this country. We want to introduce you to Conrad Hines, author, Columbus historian, architect, and former uh, employee at the Columbus Division of Water. We drink tap water these days with no concerns for our health, really. This episode will discuss you know, how that became possible, how that's linked to the life and death of Mark Hanna, but we asked Conrad Hines about just what were the early ways, if any, that people had safe running water in in the second half of the 19th century? No, there really wasn't. It was just a matter of taking water from wells, in some cases surface water, and they were pumping raw water to the community. Initially, one of the big reasons for water plants initially was for fighting fires. It proved, you know, as the population grew, uh, and particularly as uh, agriculture built up around communities, you would get you know, fecal runoff from animals and the like, and that's when disease started to pop up. Waterborne diseases were a major killer in the 19th century. Cholera and typhoid fever were really the most common. We talked with our guest, uh, Conrad Hines, just about, you know, how so many Americans contracted these deadly diseases in their day-to-day lives. Cholera, typhoid, dysentery, and they're generally, you know, uh, waterborne diseases key thing has to do with what's happening around the community. Um, and in some cases, right in your own yard. Figure on one side of the yard, you have the outhouse, and the other side of the yard, you have the well. Well, eventually that bacteria uh, makes itself into the well, finds itself into the well. And with that, you'll have an entire family suddenly succumbing from you know, one type of waterborne disease or another. You know, before modern water treatment, the death rate was generally about 20%, uh, 20-25%. Of the population? Uh, of those who contracted. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that contracted uh, the disease. Um, particularly those who had, you know, a, a compromised immune system. Children, uh, elderly, those who were ill previously. Um, fever. Uh, was was a big thing, you know, not being able to break a fever and uh, intestinal pain, and it often uh, compromised the function of the intestinal tract. Following the war, 
Mark Hanna runs for school board, I think 1869, in Cleveland. He buys a newspaper, the Cleveland Herald. Back, back then, newspapers were really just echo chamber partisan publications. Um, and it's a Republican paper. In 1880, Hanna kind of dips his toe into national politics when a fellow Northeast Ohioan was nominated for the Republican presidency. Really, he more than dips his toe. I mean, he goes all in to try and get James Garfield elected. And James Garfield would be elected president uh, by a very narrow margin. And Mark Hanna becomes a player in Ohio politics and really nationally. In terms of national politics, uh, the, the work with Garfield in 1880 is, is the first national one. He's also, he's dabbled on school boards and other local political things. But uh, basically what, what we know is that, that he gets the stalwart faction of the Republican Party to back Garfield's uh, uh, candidacy for president. He actually brings them out to Garfield's home. And the interesting thing here, that's Lawnfield, is that Garfield is conducting a campaign from the front porch. It's kind of the first it's front a, porch. A front, first yeah. front porch, which you know, destroys the myth of the later front porch. Following the Civil War, really this period of time known as um, Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, all the way into you know the 1920s, there's seven people from Ohio that are elected president. Ohio is the center of politics. Hannah becomes involved with two of the biggest names of Ohio politics in the 1880s, both presidential hopefuls, Joseph Foraker of Cincinnati, Fire Alarm Joe, and John Sherman, born in Lancaster from Mansfield and then a congressman from northeastern Ohio. Both are Republicans. Sherman was very, very close to getting the nomination, the Republican nomination in 1888 that ultimately went to uh, fellow Ohioan Benjamin Harrison. He was nominated on the eighth ballot in Chicago. But we talked with John Grabowski about Mark Hanna and really how he got involved heavily with these two big names, Joe Foraker and John Sherman, who, yes, was the brother of General Sherman. If you're looking at his career as a political operator, it's Joe Foraker. It's a fire alarm Joe Foraker, as he's known, Civil War veteran who's running for governor. And... uh, and Hannah takes over that campaign and promotes promotes Four Acre. Eventually, they will have a serious falling out, and that's a very long, complex story. But he's also very close to John Sherman, and John Sherman is William Tecumseh Sherman's brother. He's one of a larger family. And Sherman uh, starts out in the House of Representatives, and then he becomes a senator. He's an ardent Republican right at the beginning of the party, a very much strong abolitionist. Uh, but Sherman is a three-time candidate for, for president, nomination for president, if you will. And, uh, and Hannah really promotes his, his candidacy in each, in each time. And it's during one of these candidacies for uh, the nomination, if you will, for president that, that Foraker comes out against Sherman. Right. And that essentially splits Hannah from Foraker. Their friendship, if you will, ends, but it also splits the Republican Party in Ohio. And that's a split that will endure. It was here in the 1870s, actually, here in Ohio. William McKinley, a war hero attorney from Canton, Ohio, and Mark Hanna, the subject of our episode today, they first cross paths. They're actually on the different sides of a coal mining strike. McKinley, the attorney representing the strikers, and Hanna, the the industrialist magnate, uh, the affected, you know, the owner of the an affected mine. Um, although they're on different sides, and, and McKinley would be successful in that case. They basically began a relationship out of that case, which I think takes place in 1876. 
Yeah, there are different sides of the coal mining strike. This is really interesting because there are a couple of times when they're in contention and the story when they first meet, we're not really sure because they, they had foggy memories at times. Right. But uh, there was a coal miner strike in, and Marcus Hanna is representing the company and the strike gets violent. In Canton. In I Canton, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, the, the trial is in Canton and uh, and McKinley is representing the workers. And there are a number of workers who are, are indicted for the violence and finally only one of them gets convicted. McKinley is successful in getting them off and and at that point, Hannah is, is very, very impressed with what he sees, what he sees the fortitude in McKinley. And in another instance, McKinley is being uh, proffered a position, and I believe in one of the nomination processes uh, for president, and, and flatly turns it down because he's already pledged his support to the other candidate. And Sherman, Han- I think. Sherman, it's yeah. Sherman. And, and Hannah sees that, and he realizes that here's a man uh, you know, he's a good lawyer. He's smart. He has Hannah sees that that he is in favor of business interests, but he also sees him as a very honest character. As we get back to the water portion of this episode, we need to talk about alcohol in the 19th century. I've said this on this show a number of times, going back to one of our first episodes, Ohio versus Booze, our Prohibition episode. Um, people drank a lot more in the 19th century. Americans drink an average of 2.3 gallons of pure alcohol a year. When you compare that with 7.1 gallons of alcohol per person in 1830, I mean, you, you couldn't trust the water out of the well. So many would mix, you know, liquor as almost like a sterilizing agent to their water. People would just not drink water. They would just drink alcohol instead because it was safer. Conrad Hines, his book, The Great Columbus Experiment of 1908, he he focuses on the role of alcohol in the story of potable water. We asked him about it when we sat down. Bars made a killing promoting drink beer instead of water. Right. Okay. And and Columbus was a, a, a brew town. It was a way of treating the whole idea of even alcohol. You know, uh, for instance, whiskey and branch water. It's whiskey, you know, a bit of whiskey added to crick water. All right. It was, you know, it started out as a way of, uh, you know, preventing disease. But these waterborne diseases, these organ trail diseases that we talk about, many famous Americans died. It, it was not something that having money or power could necessarily prevent. Typhoid fever and cholera, they cut across all racial and socioeconomic lines. We talk with with Conrad Heinz about some of the most famous Americans from history that died from water. Well, the wife of our second president, uh, Abigail Adams. Really? Yes, she she died of typhoid. Um, President uh, Lincoln's son, his third son, Willie, uh, died within the first year of his administration. And that, that really shook him up. One of the signers of the uh, Declaration of Independence, Robert, uh, Roger Sherman, contracted uh, typhoid and passed away. Wilbur Wright. Oh, that's right. As a yeah. young man, uh, we lost him. And it's interesting, I mentioned Lincoln. Uh, within a year after the election of Lincoln, Stephen Douglas died of typhoid. As we get back to the Mark Hanna portion of this story, really the way that he became such a famous American uh, was because of the way that he ran William McKinley's campaign for president in 1896. 
the introduction of, of big money, corporate money, really, into presidential politics. And Mark Hanna goes to his former friend, John D. Rockefeller. He gets a contribution of $250,000 from Rockefeller for McKinley. I mean, that has to be the largest single political donation up to that point in U.S. history. He works the banks. He works the trusts, the railroads, corporate America, where he's intimately been involved for the last 20-so years. He was a, you know, an industrialist, a magnate himself. That's the way he's able to do it. It's McKinley's commitment to growing American business interests across the globe and also the fact that McKinley's opponent in 1896 is the populist, the great commoner, 36-year-old William Jennings Bryan. Think of him as kind of the Bernie Sanders of his time, uh, except for he's about 40, 50 years younger. But he's the youngest and still is the youngest major party candidate of all time. His meteoric rise in anti-business and pro-silver, you know, his pro-silver coining stances, they have the business community just absolutely shook. You know, Hannah would raise more than 10 times the money, maybe more. The numbers always jump around. Then Brian would be able to raise in 1896. We talk about Hannah McKinley and the modern political campaign. Really, you know, one, one, I think, can successfully argue that it is a prototype of the modern campaign. Rather than dunning donors on a percentage of their salary in order to uh, fund a campaign, uh, Hannah goes out and he approaches people, including his old classmate, John D. Rockefeller, and, and raises money. Now, the figure has been pretty much bounced around. $3.5 million was raised, supposedly, to finance a campaign. Three point five million, eighteen ninety six. million, 1896 dollars. Yeah. right, which is, which is substantial. So that's the first time that they've done that. But what's really interesting is the way that's invested, because essentially... Uh, Hannah makes that money available to for campaign paraphernalia, if you will. And and they, they pump out tons of literature. Charles Dawes, who's working out of Chicago, is putting together pamphlets. They're putting together posters with the best lithography you can find. I mean, you know, the posters of those times are basically, they're like tweets with images, okay? Yeah. You see them on the wall. And uh, the, the other thing that they're doing is they're using the telephone to communicate. They're, they're literally communicating by telephone. So they know what's happening. You know, they're in New York and, you know, they can call Chicago by this time. So they know what's going on. They've totally coordinated it. And the good fortune for them is is that they're running against William Jennings Bryan. And they're able to paint Bryan into a corner as, as this radical who is going to destroy, you know, capitalism, destroy the solidity of American civilization by inflating the currency by coining silver. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. His, McKinley's opponent, William Jennings Bryan, is one of the best orators of the 19th century. He's giving half a dozen stump speeches a day. He's crisscrossing the country, speaking to the Gilded Age issues that are really similar to the issues we face today. The growing wealth gap, the one percenters, the economic disparity in America was just as stark then as it is now. McKinley knows that he can't keep up with Bryan's oratory skills, so he, he would look pretty bad. So he decides on making a campaign run from Canton. We'll talk about all this, the front porch campaign and all this McKinley stuff in our next season, season five, about the presidency and Ohio presidents. But the reason I bring this up is it's, you know, this idea that Mark Hanna completely controlled McKinley. Uh, the front porch campaign really is one of the ways that debunks that. Hanna wanted him to, to campaign, to go out at least in the swing states, just like Brian was doing. But McKinley wins out. And Hannah and his team, including great Ohio and future Vice President Charles Dawes, who's running the campaign offices in, in Chicago, they shift their focus and begin to bring the country to Canton. 
They bring them to Ohio to meet the Republican nominee. 700,000 uh, Americans would travel to the McKinley residence that summer and fall. Hannah and the campaign would finance a lot of those trips. Uh, it's really a great example, like I said, uh, that Hannah didn't necessarily control McKinley. Hannah disagreed with this idea you know, wholeheartedly, um, but it's one of those examples that really is ignored by history and facts. The fact that Mark Hannah wasn't necessarily just a puppet master. What you're looking at is this, this huge rift in, during the Gilded Age, the late Gilded Age, between those who have and those who don't have. And the interesting issue is that we've just come out of a major recession in 1893 under Grover Cleveland. And, and so people are hurting. And, and this is a really interesting turn they, they take because they're, they're capturing a country. And, uh, and Brian is all over the country. He's speaking himself silly at this yeah. point. Yeah, and that's, that's when McKinley decides, I'm going to do this from my front porch. Yes. McKinley, McKinley basically, uh, what, what I've seen is, is not only decides that, no, we're going to stay here in, in Canton, Ohio, and what, what Hannah will then do is arrange the trains to bring people into Canton, Ohio to see McKinley. You know, Canton, Ohio goes gangbusters because yeah. people are rolling in for this. But also, uh, McKinley goes over and he vets the questions, the, the speeches that he's giving. It's not Hannah writing speeches for McKinley. McKinley's his own man. In 2015, Carl Rove he published a really great, well-researched book called *The Triumph of William McKinley*. I've read it twice, once uh, you know in a hardback, and, and, and once again on Audible. Um, and the book is about McKinley and Mark Hanna and the election of 1896. I, I implore you to go read it. I know a lot of listeners might say Carl Rove, gross, um, but he he did a great job with this book. When Rove emerged on the national scene in, I guess it would have been about 1999, he's running George W. Bush's campaign. And the comparisons between Rove and Hannah, uh, they're these puppet masters who are raising millions of dollars for their uninspiring, you know, not intelligent Republican presidential candidates. This connection between the two of them was born. But it's also born because Rove would make that comparison between himself and Hannah on the campaign trail. It really resulted in Mark Hanna, 100 years later, being back in the national lexicon, back in the national discussion. Uh, you know, famous historian Ron Susskind, uh, he reported back then, he's talking to old colleagues of Rove's, and they would joke, and I quote, Some kids want to grow up to be president. Carl wanted to be Mark Hanna. We'd talk about it all the time. We'd say, Jesus, Carl, what kind of kid wants to grow up to be Mark Hanna? I love that quote. But the comparison between the two to the the first modern campaigner, Mark Hanna, and Karl Rove, it, it really did catch on. Even though I believe there are some fundamental differences between William McKinley and George W. Bush. I think it catches on because the public assumption uh, in both cases, both with Bush and, and with McKinley, that these were just nice guys who really didn't have the political chops to make it through. And so this, this is just, you know, nice, nice guys who can be easily manipulated. And and so when the Rove-Bush thing comes up, interestingly, you know, this is a century after Hannah, the image of Hannah comes up right away, Hannah and McKinley and sort of the manipulation. It goes back to Davenport cartoon. Carl Rove, who is well known as uh, one of the top aides of George W. Bush, used to talk about William McKinley. 
but there were also a lot of copies suggesting that Karl Rove was the Mark Hanna to George Bush, Mark Hanna to William McKinley. Who was Mark Hanna, and do you agree with that comparison? There's probably something to it. Was he like, um, who was the guy with McKinley? Uh, uh, Mark Hanna. No, Mark Hanna was really involved and in, very influential, but only in some areas. Rove is the next level of this kind, you could argue, next level of this relationship between a president creating a permanent campaign inside the White House in which politics and policy are blended. 19th century, that first Gilded Age, captured Rove's attention as a younger man especially the role of Mark Hanna, the Ohio entrepreneur who became the first modern political fundraiser. There are two things that are important in politics, Mark Hanna said. The first is money, and I can't remember the second. We talk with our guest John Grabowski about this comparison and the role that political cartoons and the anti-Mark Hanna political cartoons that were so popular, um, how they would make such a difference and really stick on Mark Hanna for the next hundred years. He would always appear in these cartoons as larger than life, this bloated puppet, ma- uh, puppet master wearing a suit made of dollar bills. A dollar mark is what the cartoons called him. The political cartoons were kind of like the daily show of its day, the political meme, the tweets of the day. We talked to John Grabowski just about Mark Hanna's reputation. That campaign against dollar mark, uh, you know, the argument that McKinley was okay, but he was being manipulated... You know, it just rebounds. It's, it's the longevity of that historical yeah. image, of of what we would call, you know, basically a, not a tweet, but but something on the internet that you would see consistently and constantly turning up. Yeah, the political cartoons were were you know hugely important, incredibly important, and political. I, Davenport was one of the best paid political cartoonists of all times, you know, and he was self taught as well. But it's not just bringing big money into politics that makes Mark Hanna an innovator in political campaigns. He and McKinley also changed the way presidential campaigns are run. Two years before the the election, uh, beginning in 1894, McKinley leaves the governorship of Ohio, and they begin a national campaign, going to meet with delegates, going down south to power brokers in states like Georgia, uh, and meeting with people across the country about their campaign. It seems like an obvious thing to do now, but back then, that's just not how you did it. These parties would go to the convention with six, ten possible candidates and the the favorite son candidates as they were called the ohio delegation you know they would cast all their votes for the ohio candidate even if he really didn't have a chance to win and then they'd go back in these smoke-filled rooms and the power brokers would trade their delegates for political patronage uh you know for example james garfield uh was elected in 1880 on the 36th ballot 36 times it took a vote over a number of days there's some 14 candidates that are considered uh, that's how presidential candidates were picked. Hannah and McKinley say enough of that. They modernized the process in 1896, and it helps them get elected. We talk with John Grabowski about, you know, there were no primaries back then, but we talked to him about really how they ran their own primary. You know, one of the problems with political campaigns, if you look at the nomination processes up to the 1890s, every delegation has their favorite son, you know, yeah. and, and so it just becomes chaos. Uh, it's, it's, it's all It all happens at the convention. convention. Right, it all happens at the convention, and so by the time you sort it out, it's 
And so they needed some certitude. And what happens, you know, Hannah takes a leave from the business, M.A. Hannah and Company, quits his day job, so to speak, in 1894. And they begin the process of going out to all these states and talking to the legislatures and getting them on board ahead of time with McKinley, with McKinley's candidacy. And they're fairly successful in doing this. So it's not that McKinley has a complete slate when he walks into the convention hall in 1896, but he's walking in with less sort of a, a smaller debris field around yeah. him. And, and that really begins to streamline the process. So uh, they've done their homework. It's not a last-minute thing. McKinley does get elected over William Jennings Bryan. Right away, Mark Hanna would use his influence with McKinley to achieve his goal of becoming a U.S. senator. Many, you know, including then-senator from Ohio, Joseph Foraker, thought that Hanna and, and McKinley were in cahoots when they offered the, uh, the then-senior Ohio senator, John Sherman, that we talked about earlier, they offered him the position of Secretary of State. It's really, you know, the best cabinet position, especially back then. And Sherman takes it, even though he's very old. Uh, and many people, Sherman later even would believe that they did this just to free up a spot in the Senate for Mark Hanna. We talked to John about, you know, the process of becoming the, the senator from Ohio in 1897. Until the uh, 17th Amendment was passed in 1913, senators were elected through the state legislature. That's how they were chosen. That's how the founders wanted the system to work. It sort of filtered it down to sort of a level of elite participation. Uh, so when Hannah is interested in being senator, and this is quite interesting, uh, McKinley becomes president, and the thing that Hannah could have gotten was a cabinet post. Sure. He was offered cabinet post, and he said no. He basically wanted to be the senator. Uh, the roadblock, though, was that, that Ohio already had two senators, John Sherman and Joe Foraker. Oh, okay, nice. you're right, nice. Uh, Sherman is up in age. He's, he's been there for a long time, and some people felt that he was in his dotage. And so McKinley then offers Sherman the plum job of Secretary of State, probably the highest cabinet post. And this is where the political historians get into this. Did he offer Sherman that job because he really wanted Sherman? Or did he offer Sherman the job so Sherman would vacate the senatorial seat and then Mark Hanna was, not, was, uh, was basically appointed to fill it and, and then basically squeaked by in an election to get it? Uh, we don't know. And, and Sherman did not last that long as Secretary of State. Not so a great secretary it was not a great thing. So there may have been, I hate to say this, there may have been a conspiracy of sorts because it's, it's almost certain that McKinley knew where Hannah's thoughts were. He wanted to be a senator. left John's office at Case Western after our interview, I went to go find the Mark Hanna Monument. It's just a few blocks away from his office in University Circle. I really realized I used to drive by it almost every day in law school on my way from downtown to go up Cedar Hill to Cleveland Heights. It's a pretty impressive statue. He's seated in a high chair almost like he's on a throne, the political kingmaker. All my east side Clevelanders out there, I suggest you go find it right off of Stokes. But we talked with John Grabowski about that statue in Cleveland to Mark Hanna. 
I mean, being senatorial at that time was was immensely powerful. Yeah. And if you see the statue of him here in University Circle, seated in the chair, it, it is it is almost Romanesque and you know Roman in terms of the power that exuded from sitting at this seat. Where's that statue? At? Uh, it's right on Euclid Avenue, uh, very very near Stokes Boulevard here in University Circle. It was erected after Hannah's death, and it's the it's the last. I think it's actually the last work by Auguste Saint Gaudin. Uh, and it was uh, subscribed to by all of Hannah's friends in Cleveland to be put together. McKinley wins re-election in 1900. He wins the Spanish-American War a couple of years before. In his first term, the economy continues to improve. And you hear a lot about the contentious and important election of 1896. Not as much about 1900. He's running again against William Jennings Bryan. We asked John briefly about that election, about the role of Mark Hanna in McKinley's re-election. It, it took McKinley a little while to ask him to handle the campaign. Uh, and so there's some literature on that as, you know, what was going on. It was McKinley trying to get away under, away from under Mark Hanna and didn't, didn't Mark have better things to do as a senator. But eventually he was asked to handle the campaign. But the system he had set up in 96... Was it was in place, so he didn't have that much to do. Yeah, you know, building. It, yeah. It, it, was, it had been built. The foundation had been built. The system was in place, and once again, they're running against William Jennings Bryan. In 1900, Mark McKinley wins six more states. He holds all the same states he won in 1896. We'll talk about just what made him so popular next season when we talk about the presidency. Uh, look for that season to kick off probably, probably in May of 2020. It is an election year, so. We're going to be talking about all these elections, but John talks about just what made McKinley so popular. McKinley's popular because he, you know, much to his his own angst, he had got us through the uh, Spanish-American War and, the, and the, the detritus of that war in terms of the war, the ongoing war in the Philippines were still there. A lot of the 1900 campaign was an anti-colonial campaign by uh, the Bryan and the Democrats because we had now become a colonial power. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, McKinley was elected, and he was elected with a new vice president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Hobart had died, right. and so Roosevelt was brought in, which is a very interesting story. Senator Mark Hanna was a popular senator on Capitol Hill, and he did really get some things done in his seven-some years in the Senate. His main contribution, though, to U.S. history while being a senator is the building of the Panama Canal. They call it the Hanama Canal, <laughs> in, in a sense, and... Uh, I mean, there had been plans for a canal across the uh, isthmus uh, for a long time. The French started, I think most people know this story. And the preferred route for many people in Congress, because the United States was going to go ahead and do this, was through Nicaragua. And, north and, of that. And, yeah. North of that. And, and Hannah is, is one of the people in favor of, of the Panama route. And he's able to really push this through Congress to, to get the Panama route approved. So the, it's a major switch because a lot of people just looked at the Nicaragua route. So that's, that's what he's really known for at that point. He is also, interestingly, like many, he's trying to find a middle ground between the conflict between labor and capital. And, and that's one aspect of Hannah that most people neglect. Uh, He's, he's certainly not a progressive in a full progressive sense, right. uh, but he senses that, that one needs to engineer an acceptable solution between uh, a violent, if you will, a violent relationship between workers and uh, owners. So that, that is part of it. And that's part, it basically, it's the inscription on his statue there talks about his, his uh, 
efforts to bring labor and capital together. There is one thing about McKinley's second term that, that is different. His vice president from his first term, Garrett Hobart, dies in 1899, and against Hannah's wishes yet again, Theodore Roosevelt is added to the ticket in 1900. Hannah did not like Roosevelt. It's just another example that, although he was very involved in McKinley's campaign, he was not a puppet master. But Roosevelt, all fired up, he travels the nation, he's campaigning for McKinley. Uh, Grabowski, our, our guest John Grabowski, speaks about the complicated relationship between Hannah and Teddy, especially after McKinley's assassination in 1901, as Teddy Roosevelt ascends to the presidency. When Roosevelt is being considered for, for the uh, vice presidential seat, he says something like, you know, there's, you know, there's only one life between him and, and, the, and the White House, which is McKinley's life, which now, ironically and sadly is the case because he's assassinated in September 1901. And purportedly when McKinley is shot and Hannah, and I say purportedly in very strong voice, and Hannah first hears it, he says, now that damned cowboy is president. Yeah. Uh, so he, like many of the more conservative Republicans, were worried about Roosevelt because he was progressive. He was talking about busting the trust. He was going to do a lot of things that that people like Hannah didn't want to go that far on. Um, so they and sort of a loose cannon, if you will, in in their image. And so there's Teddy. He's he's president, and and Marcus Hannah as senator learns to live with it. And uh, and Hannah has his own presidential aspirations in 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 1904. And, and the question is, what's he going to do with Roosevelt? Interestingly, one of the rapprochements between them takes place here in Cleveland at what is now St. Paul's Catholic Church. It used to be St. Paul's Episcopal Church at 40th and Euclid. Hannah's daughter, uh, Ruth Hannah, marries into the Medill McCormick family. It's the society wedding of the era. And McCormick's from Chicago? From Chicago, yeah. yeah the newspapers, the Reaper, and everything else. It's all there. And, uh, and an invited guest who turns up is... President Theodore Roosevelt, and supposedly there, there's some rapprochement that takes place at that point. As we approach the election year 1904, Mark Hanna was being mentioned as a Republican presidential candidate. Roosevelt was popular in 1903 and in, in, going into 1904, but he wasn't invincible. He had never been elected to this position. Hanna still controlled the Republican Party, he thought. In fact, financier J.P. Morgan, he offered to finance Hanna's run as they ate Thanksgiving dinner in 1903, a year before the pending presidential election. A lot of people like Morgan and, and other uh, industrial magnates were not fans of Roosevelt. He talked about busting up the trust and stuff. But TR was smart, and he asked around the same time, he asked for Hannah to run his campaign. Hannah's stuck in the middle between, you know, never officially pulling the trigger on making a run, uh, would he be TR's opponent or would he be his campaign manager and was Mark Hanna really even a viable candidate yeah I think he was in his mind but I believe by 1904 he would have had a hard time shoving Roosevelt aside because Roosevelt had done such a great job of marketing himself of really changing things of pushing issues that people wanted and doing a great job with the press as well. Yeah, he was Roosevelt. Really, I don't would say how knew how to manipulate the press, but he had a personality that was newsworthy. I think that's he, he had 
he has a terrible speaking voice, but he, he was charismatic mm-hmm. in what he did. He had an incredible backstory in terms of where he came from. Uh, he had, and, and, and the thing is, in the San Juan Hill, the Rough Riders, the whole issue, you know, here's, here's a guy who is really masculine, he's really forward, he's really pro-American, um, and, and that's, you know, that's what you, what you see. And I think Hannah, had he chosen, and he chose not to, had he chosen to, for Acre, tried to push him into admitting that he wanted to be uh, a candidate for president. And, and I think he's the chair of the party at that point, part, too. Yeah. Right, yeah. And and basically, he was going to do something, and, and Roosevelt supposedly wrote to him and said, you know, my supporters need to support me, or something like that. So Hannah caved. In, in the late 1903, I think. Three, yeah. right, yeah. And uh, I don't think he would have made it. That's, that's my opinion. As we bring back our guest, Conrad Hines, as the calendar turns to 1904, Mark Hanna's back in Ohio, and he's in Columbus for the inauguration of Myron T. Herrick for governor, a friend and a Hanna-backed candidate. And as we talked to Conrad, a former manager at the uh, project manager at the City of Columbus Water Department, he talks to us about how Mark Hanna in January of 1904 falls ill. He falls ill drinking Columbus water. He was in town for, he had just gotten, uh, as kingmaker, Myron Herrick elected as governor. So yeah. he was in for the swearing-in in Columbus, stayed at the Chittenden Hotel. That's where the Workers' Comp building is now, High in Spring. Good there thing. was an epidemic at the time. Okay, so we were, we were um, affected by an epidemic, and there was a, bowl, a boiled water uh, alert issued early in the month of January. The talk was that uh, at the hotel, they were most likely serving bottled water. But in the course of bathing, yeah. you know, it's any, any number of ways that he could have uh, come in contact with the tainted water. Senator Mark Hanna has fallen ill with typhoid fever. He's very sick, and it's clear to everyone it's from the water in Columbus, Ohio. He makes his way back to D.C., but our guest, John Grabowski, lays out the death of Mark Hanna, the political kingmaker. He was at an event for the inauguration of Myron T. Herrick as governor of Ohio in Columbus. And, and Columbus had a water boil order on, and he drank the water, and that's the way you get typhoid. And by the time he came to D.C., he was sick, and he couldn't eat. He lingered in bed, and he died. Um, and there are, there are records at the Western Reserve Historical Society, their scrapbooks his family kept of, the, of obituaries and their letters of condolences, and they are very thick. And on February 15, 1904, Mark Hanna would die. Immediately, the press in Columbus and around the country, they go into a frenzy. The water in Columbus has killed one of the most powerful men in the country. Conrad Hines discusses the blame game that developed, even as Hannah lingered before his death. The press went uh, completely rabid. It was, you know, it was a fantastic uh, story, and as, particularly as he was lingering at um, in his uh, hotel suite in Washington. Um, a lot was at stake for any number of people based on uh, the power that he had because he was at the, at the height of his power at the time of his death. Um, Columbus first 
the the media first just you know, blamed Columbus Water, and then it sort of shifted to where it was the state's fault, because further upstream, uh, State Hospital uh, had a problem with their sewage that had been going into the Scioto. Hannah's death wasn't in vain. In Columbus, the city leaders and voters, they decided to do something about this water situation. Hannah's passing was the spark that would move the city of Columbus to become a pioneer in water treatment. We talked with Conrad Hines just about how Columbus water would become the one that would set a standard, a standard of excellence. There were a number of big issues going on. One, given the growth of the city, the city was running out of water. The wells were just about at their, their were at their peak. So this whole idea of they need they knew that something had to be done. All right. Uh, so Hannah's death was the catalyst that got everyone, voters, everyone, uh, uh, in action for the sake of actually doing something and doing something innovative. Um, and then this is why, as I said, people had been dying, but I think with Hannah and the embarrassment and the like, I think they chose to, okay, this is enough. We've had enough. Okay. And one of the key things is let's do something that makes, that sets a standard worldwide. Let's do something that sets a standard. And from 1904, when Hannah died, to 1908, they constructed a comprehensive citywide water system in what would become known as the Columbus, uh, the Great Columbus Experiment. There's three elements that compose the experiment. Griggs Dam and Reservoir on the Scioto River, well north of really a lot of the urban development then in Upper Arlington now, uh, to provide a supply of clean water. If you look at our cover here for this episode, Ohio vs. Water, that is Griggs. Uh, and it's still there today. You can go see it right off of Dublin Road 33, Riverside Drive there. Also, they built a treatment plant near the juncture of where the Scioto and the Olentangy uh, meet to purify and soften that water. A mixture, I guess, of you know soda, lime, aluminum. Uh, and that's the Dublin Road water plant where our guest, uh, Conrad Hines, used to work. It was designed by Charles Hoover, a scientist uh, trained at Ohio State who you know really helped develop this excess lime treatment, uh, you know, sterilization process for water. Uh, also, the Hoover Reservoir in up in in Hoover uh, Hoover Dam up in Westerville, named after him. A truly, lastly, a revolutionary sewer system, a sewer plant, uh, which employed bacteria in kind of a pathbreaking way to break down and purify the city's sewage. We asked Conrad Hines about just the price tag on this massive the great Columbus experiment. Roughly, it was about, um, in those years, yes, to your question, but it was about um, $3.3 million. Which is about now, what today? Today, that would probably be close to $300 million. Wow. Um, and even that, you know, probably a conservative figure. Because when you figure in, you know, EPA regulations... I guess one of the questions I always had is, why is it called an experiment? And really what, we talked about some of it, but what is really different from what other cities were doing? Large-scale filtration, okay, a large-scale filtration 
they were you know setting an example for because the, you know the, the plant was in service until what, uh, the 1970s mm -hmm. okay so it was a, definitely a facility that was designed for the future and as a matter of fact they didn't have to add additional facilities until let's see after world war ii now um but the big innovation, and this is where the experiment term comes into play, was the wastewater treatment. Uh, this idea of what they call a trickle filter. That's an aerobic process that's used in um, wastewater treatment. Uh, you essentially have like sprinklers that are sprinkling over a bed of um, stone and sand. and uh, the question was, will this work in a cold weather environment, a cold climate, without freezing? Right. Okay. On you know, at, on a large scale, and so that that was the big question. That that was the the gamble, and it did. But the experiment did work. The results are clear right away. The Columbus water experiment in the wake of Marcana's death really becomes the model for the entire world. Lives are, you know, are saved globally over the decades to follow. Mark Hanna's, his death impacted millions of more lives than he could have impacted had he won the White House in 1904. We talked to Conrad about the immediate results of the new water treatment system in Columbus. A uh, 75% decrease. In like a what, a couple of years? Oh, uh, probably within three years, less than three years. 75% decrease and that you know the 25% that was there a lot of that was individuals that came to Columbus for uh, medical care in the 1930s uh, the Soviet Union mentioned that they knew nothing about Columbus but they did know about our water treatment facility this didn't save all tap water forever. We still have the occasional water boil here in Columbus. Many poor countries and cities uh, are not able to keep their water clean. And also we all know about Flint, Michigan. The water-based tragedy really there, their water treatment situation. We talk with Conrad Hines just about the Flint situation. Well, they changed their supply. Bottom line as I see it, compared to Columbus, there was a lack of professional and moral commitment to the community. And that's something that Columbus does have so far as its water supply, okay? See, water, you know, it's taken for granted here in Columbus. But it's interesting that uh, overall Columbus, aside for, you know, engineering it, you know, these, these reservoirs are like, giant canteens okay we really don't have that much water all right um in flint the whole idea of the population the population was not a priority uh it was not they were not a from a political standpoint there were just other agendas and the problem still has yet to be completely resolved 
these dystopian novels and movies. I love dystopian films. Um, they predict this future in which countries and states will clash over water in an overpopulated warming world. This might sound silly, but it very well might be coming. The water wars. This clip we're going to play here is just an extra from Conrad and I were just having a discussion after the interview when I brought up the water wars. I figured I had a water expert in front of me. Why not ask? He says Ohio is uniquely positioned for such a dystopian future. There's very little fresh water on the face of the earth. Very little. Two, 3% of the water on the face of the earth is fresh water. 2% of that, uh, so two-thirds of it, is glacier ice. Yeah. Okay. Now, of the fresh water that we have, it's 20% of the... 20% of surface water on the face of the earth is in the Great Lakes, right next to us. People, you know, I, I tell people that in the Mideast, people say, oh boy, oil, oil, you know, I mean, Kuwait and places like that. There are places, you know, if, if a guy, if a Kuwaiti pulled out a $100 bill and lit a cigarette with it. We think that was, oh boy, obnoxious. <laughs> well, they think that when we take and wash a car. Right. So we're in a good spot then for the water wars. Uh, oh yeah. And as we close today, you know, Mark Hanna, the subject of today's episode was a super important Ohioan. He lived a big life, big successes, but really his death uh, had the biggest impact on the lives of people across the world. Um, and even on untold numbers of people who are yet to be born. We talked to John Grabowski about his still negative image in the history books and also the way he radicalized modern political campaigning. Well, one can say that the creation, his role in the creation of the modern campaign is, is something we still live with. And, and you can't credit him totally for that. Other people were there. Dawes was doing that and so forth. Uh, that is still the way we do it. We raise buckets and buckets and buckets of money nowadays. And, and it is about money that, that we're going. Um, the other thing is, uh, other than that, his, his image is still somewhat tarnished by those Davenport cartoons. Yeah. He, he is a bloated capitalist. Uh, who buys the presidency for William McKinley, who is incapable of fulfilling the presidency without Hannah's manipulations. I think that still lives. Yet there's another side of him. Uh, political kingmaker? Absolutely. Uh, remarkable man at a remarkable time in this state's history. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon, so many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation today is Conrad Hines' book, our guest, The Great Columbus Experiment of 1908, Waterworks That Changed the World. 
uh, the book from 2012 and our friends over at Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Lots of awesome photos in there too. Um, and you get into a much deeper dive of some of these topics that we discussed today. So thanks so much to, to Conrad for joining us and also Professor of History at Case Western Reserve, John Grabowski. Uh, awesome having him uh, let us come up to Cleveland and talk to him about the life of Mark Hanna. We appreciate all the work you know work that John does uh, with the Western Reserve Historical Society, which we implore you to go check out, one of our great history museums here in the state. Uh, real quick, another book recommendation. I would suggest you read Carl Rove's The Triumph of William McKinley from 2015. Great book uh, and lays out the entire relationship between Hannah and McKinley and just how Hannah really did revolutionized political campaigning to look more like it does uh, as we know it today. Again, we ask you guys, rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. It's a lot easier to do. really helps us shoot up the ratings, so much appreciated. Here's a review we got just from uh, last week from Car Hilton. It says, uh, entitled Great Podcast, only recently came across this podcast. It has quickly become one of my favorites. It is so well produced, and the episode's are so interesting and filled with incredible history. If you want to learn more about Ohio history and Ohio's impact on American history, this is the podcast for you. Thank you very much. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, again, you write a review, there's a good chance we'll read it on the air. Um, we have one episode left. We will profile in episode 12 the trailblazers and heroes that were the Tuskegee Airmen. Not only were many of the pilots from the World War II fighting uh, squadron from Ohio, but they're also stationed here outside Columbus after the war. We'll talk about how they lifted a nation with their heroism in the face of really stiff resistance from the armed forces and our own government. Episode 12, Ohio vs. Segregation. Uh, that will wrap our season four. Look for that on Super Bowl Sunday, February 2nd. It's only going to be a short hiatus for us, guys. This year we will be back on all your devices uh, looking like May of 2020, so about a three-month break for season five, uh, which will be about the presidency. It's an election year, as I'm sure we're all going to painfully find out in the months to follow, especially here in Ohio. Still a lot of work we have to do on that season, a lot of research. We haven't started doing any of the interviews, um, but we are greatly looking forward to that, and that's what we will be doing uh, during our time off. So thanks again, guys, for listening. It's been an awesome year. Uh, we got one more episode for you. Thanks for listening to episode 11, Ohio vs. Water. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 